to the Football Outsiders Fantasy Podcast. I'm Scott Spratt, your host and a writer for FootballOutsiders.com. Later on in this episode, we're going to do both quarterback and tight end rankings from our preseason Kubiak rankings up on Football Outsiders. I wanted to, to jam them both into this episode in case people are drafting this week or drafting over Labor Day weekend. So hopefully that can help you out. We're going one stat per player for the top quarterbacks and the top tight ends. But first, I have a very special guest. We have an interview with Fantasy Hall of Famer Brandon Funston from The Athletic. So let's get that started. Okay, joining me on the podcast today is Brandon Funston, who you may know as his Hall of Fame self from his previous work at ESPN and Yahoo. Now spearheads the coverage at The Athletic, a tremendous fantasy football site that everybody should check out. Brandon, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for getting up early. Hope you're doing okay. Yeah, actually, this isn't too bad. It's eight o'clock my time in the morning, which, uh, you know, if I can start things by eight, I'm doing okay. If it gets earlier than that, then, uh, you know, then things start off a little bit slowly. Absolutely. Well, we're less than 10 days out from the start of the of the football season, we hope. And so today I want to focus mostly on fantasy drafts. I think a lot of people will be drafting either later this week or over Labor Day weekend. But I think we probably do need to start with the latest news. We're still just a day removed from the surprising Jaguars release of running back Leonard Fournette. Maybe surprising. I don't know. But the, from a fantasy perspective, I think the major question is, do any of the major remaining Jaguars running backs become fantasy relevant for you in shallower formats? Yeah, I'm not excited about them, to be honest with you. I think, uh, you know, in if I'm going into sort of a standard 12-team draft, I might identify Chris Thompson as a guy that mm-hmm. I'll be looking for late. Uh, this is a guy that's had experience with Jay Gruden. In fact, each of his last three years, he's been on a 60-catch pace only to, you know, have a season end short uh, by – five or six games each time. So he's not exactly a picture of health kind of guy, but we know that with this defense, uh, you know, likely to struggle, they've lost a lot of talent and they just lost Yannick Ngakwe. I think this could very well be one of the worst defenses in the league. And that should push the offense to have to throw the ball a decent amount. And that should push Chris Thompson onto the field a decent amount as well. So I like him from a, you know, any kind of a PPR bumped standpoint, but trying to decipher between Reichwell, Armstead, um, divine, uh, 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 Zigbo. And, uh, I think James Robinson's maybe a sleeper in the group, yeah. uh, undrafted free agent, but uh, I don't know that, that I need to be playing the, uh, guessing game in a draft right now. And it might just be something where it can react early in the season to that. If there's somebody that really stands out. I'm on the same page with you there. You actually pointed out in the Athletic Fantasy Football podcast when you were talking with Jake Seeley that you were getting some kind of like Miami Dolphins vibes from last year where there none of those guys is really a standout talent to where you're eager to just to take a jump on him in fantasy leagues. Right. And I'll point out that to me that makes a lot of sense. The Dolphins last year, 3.17 adjusted line yards, by far the worst uh, run blocking in the league. The Jaguars really weren't that much better though. 3.88 yards, uh, fifth lowest, and they, they're they returning their five starters. Good to have continuity this year maybe, but not great to have continuity if your guys weren't actually very good at blocking last season. <laughs> I was just going to say that if you didn't uh, completely <laughs> concur. I know as a Seattle fan, I've seen the same five starters before, and, and that's you know something that doesn't always get you excited, as you say, if the talent's not there. Um, you'd that's true, although Gardner Minshew, clearly the next Russell Wilson, so the Jaguars <laughs> fans at least have that to get excited about. Uh, is there anywhere that stands out to you as a possible Fournette landing spot? I mean, I've... I think the most obvious place we all go to is the Bears because there's some uncertainty that David Montgomery could miss part of September with his recent injury. But 
there are not a lot of teams that's, that jump out to me. Well, I think, you know, when you look at it from the lens of, oh, where could Leonard Fournette go where he might be a starter? It's really hard to kind of really decide that, you know, but if yeah. you start looking at him as which team would like him as a luxury backup or someone that kind of work into the mix, then you can start seeing teams like the Bears, I think the Eagles, the, the Chiefs, uh, you know, New England is very New Englandy kind of feel if they were to sign yeah. Leonard Fournette. Uh, I, I worry about Todd Gurley in Atlanta. I wonder if Atlanta has the same concerns and not really excited about their backups there. Uh, the one place where you could say, you know what, he could actually come in and be a starter would be Washington. Um, but I don't know how, you know, how much Washington cares about. I don't think they're fooling themselves into thinking they want to try to be a contender this year. I think this is a developmental year and, uh, so that would be the one place. And Leonard Fournette's mm-hmm. young enough that if they wanted to just say, you know what, Adrian Peterson's in his 30s and uh, we lost Darius Geis and, and Leonard Fournette's in his mid-20s and we could have him for a few years and he might be a part of a team a rebuild that uh, you know we could turn this thing around in a positive direction. He, he's the one place where you can see him landing and getting appreciable carries uh, from the get-go. Otherwise, you know, he's a luxury backup everywhere he goes. Okay, that makes sense. All right. With that out of the way, let's shift focus to all of the great potential sleepers, either early round over ADP, late round guys that you think um, may be good players for players to target in their fantasy drafts over the coming week. So earlier this offseason, you identified some early round guys you like more than ADP. Um, This was a couple of months ago. So I want to hit on them and see whether you still feel the same way about them. Starting with Josh Jacobs, who at the time was the number 13 running back in ADP, is now up to 11 ahead of guys like Austin Eckler, Aaron Jones, and Nick Chubb. What do you think about Josh Jacobs this season? I'm driving the bus. I'm driving the bandwagon. <laughs> I love the guy. I, I think I have him sixth at RB. Um, so I always, you know, I always point to, okay, the three check box, the boxes to check are, are, you know, volume, environment, and talent. You know, you get, yeah. you get your workload, you're in a good spot, and you got the talent, then I'm, I'm all in on you. And I think, you know, Josh Jacobs – has all that i think the environment maybe would have been something that people would question i just really think that the raiders are trending in the right direction in terms of offense they have a great offensive line uh this is a guy that's going to soak up a ton of touches he should you know he was over 20 touches last year per game and i think he's still there and there's the expected bump in the passing game mike mayak has been talking about josh jacobs has a 60 catch goal seems like everybody's on board with him getting more involved in the passing game and we have to remember he played half the year with a with a fractured shoulder blade so um in his second year with uh you know a likely bump in the passing game with an improved offense which hopefully gets him into the red zone even more gets him even more scoring opportunities i think you know this is a guy that uh, can play with the big boys at the running back position. We're, we're actually projecting Jacobs to increase from his 20 catches last season to 42 this season, really motivated by kind of what Gruden has been talking about, that that sort of you know plan for the team, but also by the fact that Jacobs was a really good pass catcher in college. He caught a pass on 16.1% of his college touches. That's just behind guys like Alvin Kamara, Joe Mixon, and Kenyon Drake, and ahead of guys like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, popular pick this year, David Johnson, and Christian McCaffrey. So that type of receiving pedigree, do you buy the 20 to 42 jump? You think that's too high, too low, just right? I think it's really close to just right. My mind has always been that, you know, 60 seems a little bit, uh, you know, overly ambitious and too much to hope for, but I thought mid forties, uh, was a fair number. So I'm, I'm kind of right in line with you. And, um, 
man, just watching, I remember just watching his film from Alabama and anecdotally just watching the way he's a, you know, he's just very natural as a receiver. And I always wondered why they weren't using him more in that capacity. You know, you want your best players to have the ball in their hands as much as possible. And um, I just, that one didn't, that one didn't make a ton of sense to me. So I, I hope they follow through on the, you know, the bump in the passing game. And I would expect mid forties receptions to kind of be about where he settles at. Excellent. Okay. Jumping a little bit later in drafts, Chris Carson at the time, the number 22 ADP running back now up to 20th ahead of guys like Le'Veon Bell and David Johnson. What are your thoughts on Carson? Uh, He's been a top 15 fantasy running back each of the last two years. Uh, This is one of the most run heavy teams in the league. He's the, you know, he's a yards after contact stud. Uh, this hip injury that uh, he he suffered at the end of last year was a was a rest injury. It's a hundred percent recovery kind of injury with rest. He's got that. So, uh, yes, I think Carlos Hyde will figure into the mix, and they'll probably look to just limit his workload a bit to kind of try to get him through the season in one piece. But he's still going to be one of the more heavily worked running backs. So I don't I don't get the the ADP on him being in that twenty early twenties range. To me, he's a mid teens. Uh, you know, running back in terms of fantasy value. Yeah, I'm with you there. Maybe people have concerns about the lack of receiving. Although to me, he's such an obvious touchdown scorer. You pointed out how the the Seahawks were top 10 in red zone opportunities each of the last two seasons. And he's actually underachieved a little bit relative to his opportunity adjusted touchdown. So I could see even more touchdown upside. Love him there as a value. A guy right in his range, Raheem Mostert. He was 23rd then, is 23rd now in ADP. What do you think about him? Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I'm also in his camp as well. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Basically him and Tevin Coleman had the same carries and he, he took his carries for 1.6 yards per carry more on average, you know, and just looking at your guys' uh, defense adjusted yards above replacement, he was seventh at running back mm-hmm. and, and Coleman was 41st. So yeah, incredibly efficient. Yeah. I would expect, I mean, they're calling Mostert the starter now, and that's kind of more of just the, you know, an honorary position in this platoon backfield, but it should net out to a little bit more of a discrepancy in favor of Mostert in terms of the volume going forward. I would think they paid him, you know, he kind of had the little contract issue and you, I always say, follow the money. Um, you know, they're, they were willing to give him the extra money. I think they've made a bigger commitment to him this year than they were at with him at the beginning of last year. And I think a lot of it has to do with how he finished down the stretch at 13 touchdowns in his final nine games, counting the postseason, uh, some, some big games uh, along the way. And just, um, you know, he's got the, he's got the track speed, his potential game breaker behind this offensive line. Um, yeah. He's, he just looked like the better running back and I would expect them to kind of reward him for that. I actually started this the offseason a little bit pessimistic pessimistic on Mostert and some of the other running backs on this team. Uh, and as Mike Clay pointed out, like, you know, he, he's bounced around the teams. It's not like he's an obvious talent. But I've kind of focused in on this idea that Kyle Shanahan seems to be collecting the fastest running backs in the league. So Mostert, Coleman, Jarek McKinnon, who's on the team and is hopefully healthy this season, and Matt Breida, who he had last year but isn't even on the team anymore, they're all sub 440 40 guys. And I noticed that the team led all teams with 13 rushing touchdowns from 10 or more yards out from the end zone. You think there maybe is something to the fact that these fast guys can break these long runs? Or do you think that the 49ers were just having this miracle season where everything was going their way? Yeah, I think there's, there is that big play potential with these guys. I just wonder, you know what? You have such a good setup. 
you actually want to go out and get a guy that can actually run fast, but also has vision, also has, you know, yeah. lateral cutting ability and can do a lot more than just think about what those guys could do in this system. And yeah, you know, it's working, but you're also kind of limiting yourself a little bit, I think, because, uh, you know, I think Tevin Coleman, Matt Breida, these guys are fast runners, lack a little bit of imagination with some of the other mm -hmm. things that, that are involved with that. So um, there's, there's some good to it, but I also think they're kind of limiting themselves by, you know, just going for speed, but not necessarily going for the entire package. Yeah. And I also think there may be a little bit of a, like a trend that Shanahan is starting. Like maybe people were overlooking what Mostert could do really well because of some of his other lack of attributes that have been traditionally valued. I wouldn't be shocked to see other teams maybe prioritizing that type of speed going forward in future years. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Let's shift to some of the wide receivers you liked. You pointed out number one, Julio Jones, then the number five wide receiver in ADP, now number four, who I guess he probably jumped DeAndre Hopkins. But what do you think about Jones's value right now? Yeah, he's my he's my number two wide receiver. I I have him right there with Devontae Adams. I just I think both of those guys such such clear cut you know number one targets in their offense with with really good uh, quarterbacks throwing them the ball. Um, you know, and I, you know, you want volume as well. And I think Atlanta's still in position with their defense to probably push the volume in the passing game on offense. But you look mm -hmm. at, you know, you look at Julio Jones after Muhammad Sanu left and he was, he was getting 11.8 targets per game in the second half of the season. And, you know, they haven't really replaced Sanu. They've replaced Austin Hooper and Devonta Freeman, also guys that commanded a decent amount of looks. But they replaced him with Todd Gurley and Hayden Hurst. And, you know, not only are they new to the team and kind of having to assimilate, uh, I don't know that Gurley has the has the passing game upside anymore that maybe um, Devonta Freeman did. But yeah. I just think that maybe coming in, they're not going to just assume the entire entirety of the volume that their predecessors had. And so, you know, I would I would expect some of that extra volume to go to Julio Jones. That makes a lot of sense to me. And and really, I think that probably most fantasy players recognize that Jones is as safe as they come from like a targets and catches perspective. Yeah. But if, if they're just, if they think that his like touchdown scoring is an issue, I know that that was a huge issue in 2017. He caught just two of 19 end zone targets that season, but he's really bounced back since then. Nine of 20 end zone catches uh, since then. I, I think he's really as safe from every perspective and is right up there. We have him first, frankly, actually ahead of Michael Thomas, but have him basically right there with Michael Thomas. Oh, do you? That's that, nice. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, the way he is, I mean, six touchdowns doesn't seem like a big number, but with the with the volume that he gets, if he just gets that as his floor, uh, you're mm -hmm. feeling really, you're not going to be upset with where you draft him if you're drafting him, you know, late first round, early second round. And I think, you know, eight, eight to 10 is is absolutely doable. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Cooper Cup. He was the number 11 wide receiver in ADP at the time, now is number 12, so drop the spot. He is still ahead of guys like Juju Smith-Schuster, Adam Thielen, uh, his teammate Robert Woods, Calvin Ridley. Uh, big fantasy producer when he's been healthy so far his career. What do you think about him and possibly a role change given that Tyler Higby emerged late last season? Yeah, I just, I've gone around, I've argued with my colleague, Jake Seeley at The Athletic about this. Um, you know, obviously there was a big reduction in playing time, time down the stretch last year. Uh, Tyler Higby emerged and Cooper Cup was on the sidelines a little bit more. I just don't, I think he's one of their most talented receiving options. And I just don't buy that they're going to want to limit his his exposure. I'm wondering if maybe, you know, he's coming off an ACL injury, if there was some, you know, just fatigue that was setting in as, 
that can happen with that injury after, you know, in that kind of the year out range from when he had it. Um, but I just think he's really good at football. I think Jared Goff loves him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, you look at 19 touchdowns in his past 28 NFL games played. He's, I think he owns that skill as a, as a touchdown maker, as a guy that Jared Goff's going to look to in the red zone. Um, he had a 70% catch rate. I looked at, among receivers with 60 plus targets last year he was he was one of five so like just good production when you throw cooper cup the ball and i just don't buy that they're going to look to find ways to put other people on the field in front of him so uh, i expect to see more of what we saw in the first half than what we saw in the second half although in the second half he he made do by scoring a touchdown pretty much every week you know he really did yeah but i I do want to focus in on what you said about the touchdowns there because Cup had 10 touchdowns last season versus just 5.9 opportunity adjusted touchdowns. That 4.1 touchdown surplus was tied for the most of the position. And interestingly, he basically had the same opportunity adjusted touchdowns as Tyler Higby, who only scored three times. So like that's something that Mike Clay has always asserted is going to regress for every player if you give it long enough. But do you think that there actually may be something to how Cup is being used in the red zone or maybe just the fact that he's so quick at separating that he can get open close to the end zone that way? Yeah, I think his skills uh, fit very well into the red zone. And I, yeah, I mean, you, you're basically saying, you know, I, I don't know about this metric, but it's just basically saying everybody's even and that, you know, there's, you know, there's going to be aggression. But there, I think there are skills, <laughs> a particular set of skills that mm-hmm. uh, Cooper Cup brings to the table that allows him to be very effective in the red zone. Not, not only that, like, you know, just like I mentioned, there's a very I think there's a very good chemistry between Cooper Cup and Jared Goff that they have this, you know, innate ability to know what, uh, you know, what Cup's going to do here and and feed off of that. So. Uh, you know, some of this is just kind of crutch argument, anecdotal. If you if you want to drill down on the you know on the opportunity adjusted TDs, mm-hmm. uh, sure we can factor in a little regression. I just think he's you know we got three years now of him showing an ability to score touchdowns. I watched this guy in college torch Pac-12 teams uh, every year. He for four straight years he just you know, ate up uh, better competition. I just think he's really good. And I, th- I think uh, sometimes he gets kind of the small college bias against him even still. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. I also tend to forget that like not everybody lives in my world of like advanced metrics and stuff. Yeah. I probably should point out for our listeners, opportunity just to touchdowns, it's a metric that Mike Clay created. And basically the premise is, no matter who you are, where you touch the ball has more to do with how many touchdowns you score than like, your skill set necessarily. So, you know, if you are running back and you get a carry from one yard from the end zone, you're going to score 55% of the time on those carries. But if you're getting it from two yards out, that drops to the thirties, get out to five yards out, it's in the teens, et cetera. And their players tend to regress back to sort of the league averages based on where they touch the ball, even if they have outlier success. Cooper is a receiver that has that type of outlier success. But I actually agree with you a little bit that receivers tend to regress less than running backs back to those expectations. So Cup is a guy that has shown that he can score more than, than the league would in his circumstances. I think that can continue to a certain extent. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I've, I've backtracked my, I, I originally I was, I was much higher. I've, I've, I've pulled back a little bit on my, on my rankings of him, but I mean, not a ton, but I think I was mm-hmm. right there inside the top 10 on him and I'm, I'm right in the mid teens now. So I, I still, I'm not, I'm not, 
I'm not wide receiver one on him in fantasy anymore, but I think he yeah. is a he's a nice upside wide receiver too. Yeah, and if he's 12th in ADP, you can still get him there at the good value. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I think Cup Woods and Tyler Higby can all have success, and I, I think the the Rams may use a little bit more 12 personnel with the two tight ends this season, just to take advantage of the the skill players that they have that are really talented without Brandon Cooks there anymore. But doesn't that that'll squeeze Cup a little bit, in, unless you want to put him to the outside? But I think he, yeah, you I, know, may, he's maybe you're right. I don't know, but so it's he, interesting. He definitely is, but maybe Higby can play us some outside. I, I'm just not yeah. sure. I. I would just trust the talent more than I would trust the roles as they've played out previously. Yeah, I'm absolutely um, with you on that. Well, one more wide receiver, a relatively early round guy that you liked earlier in the offseason, Terry McLaurin. He was 23rd at the position in ADP then, now 22nd, ahead of Tyler Lockett, Keenan Allen, and Devontae Parker. Uh, the The Washington football team has had some some changes and some injuries since then. What do you think about McLaurin now? I just, you know, another guy that kind of like Cup, I just love as a talent. Like, um, you know, Washington, the environment, don't love it. Dwayne Haskins, kind of a mixed bag. I really liked Dwayne Haskins, you know, at Ohio State. Um, thought he was accurate, big arm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's some growing pains that are happening in, in a tough spot in Washington. Yeah. But, uh, like, this is another guy that if they can pump up that pass volume, I think they were third uh, lowest in the league in, in total attempts last year, but they get that pass volume up over 500. Like McLaurin's in that Devonte Adams and Julio Jones kind of group of guys that are just positioned to have a huge target share. And that's true. And it's all about the overall volume and, and, you know, can they, can they stay on the field for longer lengths of time than they did last year? But if they do, I expect McLaurin to rise with that. You know, I think I'm leaning that way as well. And with Haskins, he's a guy that obviously, if you look at his full season numbers can make you very nervous, but he trended very positively throughout his starts. He only made like seven starts through the year and played his best in his last two. But I, something that, that just kind of struck with me that it's not something that gets talked about a lot, but like receiver age, like we think of McLaurin since he's a sophomore as this new guy and had amazing success as a rookie, but McLaurin is more than a year older than Juju Smith Schuster, who's been in the league for three years. Like, is that like, do you think McLaurin maybe has a lower ceiling because he was so old entering the league relative to some of these other prospects? I don't know if he has a lower ceiling. I mean, I think at this point, you know, um, yeah, you're talking about just as long as they're healthy and sort of in their prime. I think you got a, a few years that you can kind of, um, you know, that are somewhat similar. So like, you know, Juju Smith-Schuster does have three years in the league. Um, and yeah, he should be in, in Pittsburgh and with a healthy Ben Roethlisberger. I think there's some more upside to him than, than McLaurin. But I don't know if it's about age more than it is just uh, environment and situation. Yeah. I mean, McLaurin's still still young enough that we should see some some improvement with him over the next few years as long as there's improvement in that offense in general yeah that makes sense okay let's shift to get a little bit later in draft some of your later sleepers in ppr formats in particular you identified boston scott is one example there in, in philadelphia ah i love him and you know i love that we're looking at an an Eagles backfield that might just be willing to settle on that kind of situation they had at the end of last year with two guys with Miles Sanders being the lead guy and, and Boston Scott being kind of the sole change of pace guy. And a lot of times with Peterson, you get three, four running backs in rotation and it kind of feels like they've narrowed things down. And you look at this, you know, backfield from a fantasy standpoint, this was the seventh most, uh, productive backfield in fantasy last year. And that was Miles Sanders being the number 15 running back. That's, 
Jordan Howard being the number 41 running back overall in, in points scored and Boston Scott being number yeah. 48. Well, Boston Scott's barely going inside the top 50. Jordan Howard's out of the equation and Miles Sanders is hurt right now. I, I think Boston Scott's a top 40 player. I think he's interesting. I think he's a James White level um, value in my mind. And uh, I expect him to catch a lot of passes and I think they're going to work him in uh, more than just rarely uh, as a, as a rusher to uh, spell Miles Sanders. So I suspect fantasy players are reluctant to join you there because of Scott's size. He's five foot six and 199 pounds. And that sounds really small when you just hear the numbers relative to other players. But I've kind of been looking at BMI, body mass index, as a way to measure running back size lately and not just weight or height. And given that Scott is so short at five foot six, he actually weighs kind of a lot for his size. Uh, he's ten more than 10 pounds heavier than Darren Sproles and Tariq Cohen, who are the players that I think people are tempted to compare him to. And I'm wondering if you think that maybe the build of Scott's body maybe makes it so that he can handle a bigger workload than people expect for him. Yeah, I've I've been in on like the fire plug running backs for a long time. Maurice Jones Drew was one of my favorite mm-hmm. running backs of all time. He's kind of a similar, uh, you know, small but stout. Uh, Ray Rice, um, you know, before his issues was fantastic fantasy player, uh, kind of in the same ilk. Yeah. So I have no issues whatsoever with size. Sometimes I think it works to his advantage. I, I would love to see some studies on this, but just uh, you know, these guys that can run powerfully, but they're also, I believe for second level defenders tough to pick up sometimes in the, oh, in, yeah. the in the trash of the you know of the, the skirmish at the in the trenches there um and if you can you know you can use that to your advantage i think uh, a lot of times definitely okay next up matt Breida, who is now with the miami dolphins what do you think about him man you know i was just thinking um I don't think I've talked about matt Breida all summer since the very beginning since when he was when he moved over to miami um it's just kind of been one of those guys that I just, not a lot of people are asking about. He's sort mm-hmm. of been forgotten. Um, and I don't know that I think a whole lot about him either. I think, you know, Jordan Howard's going to be established as the guy and, and Brita's going to get something less than 50% of the workload there. And it's going to, a lot of it's going to be in the passing game where, you know, that's going to be his role. He hasn't really done that a whole lot in his career, but he's been in San Francisco where they haven't in the last couple of years anyways, thrown to their running backs a whole lot anyway. So it doesn't mean he doesn't have that skill. It's just something that they haven't really, he hasn't really had a lot of practice honing in San Francisco. Um, so he could be a surprise as a, as a high volume pass catcher and, and more than, more than, you know, just a, every once in a while replacement for Howard in the, in the running game. But, um, you know, I'm not going to invest too heavily in the upside of that. Makes sense. What about Naeem Mines uh, of the the Colts now with Philip Rivers at quarterback? Yeah, I, I, you know, you look at Austin Eckler, and a lot of people want to make that comparison. The thing is, is um, I'm hearing a lot that they're throwing to Marlon that Rivers is throwing a lot to Marlon Mack. That he's mm-hmm. throwing to Jonathan Taylor. That it's not just going to be, oh, you know what? It's time for us to throw to the running back. We got to get Naheem Mines in the game. I think they're they're looking to throw whenever they feel like it with whoever's on the field. So, um, if Mack and Taylor show themselves to be fairly proficient in that aspect. I mean, it, it behooves them to have them on the field more than Naheem Hines. Cause you're kind of, I always say you're kind of tipping your hand when you have yeah. a, a guy like that on the field, you know what you're going to do. It's nice to have some, have the defense guessing a little bit. 
I think that's true. You know, it's possible that I'm radically underrating Taylor, um, who had just a 4.3% college receiving ratio. It's, it's like very, very low. And it's it's in the range with guys like Nick Chubb and Derrick Henry, who I think that's the type of player I'm assuming that Taylor is going to be, where he's getting a heavy workload, but really skewed towards rushing. But there have been some backs who just didn't catch the ball a ton in college, but then suddenly started catching it a lot in the pros. Melvin Gordon and James Conner being two prime examples. Like maybe this is something we should just be following the beat reporters to see, but like thoughts on Jonathan Taylor from an upside perspective, like do you think he could actually catch enough balls to suddenly become a top 10 type of option, even as a rookie? Yeah, I think I'm probably somewhere in between the Gordon Connor and Chubb Henry. And also I think there's a capability. I don't know if he'll ever be, he's got some issues with his hands. Um, I don't know that he's a natural receiver. He they yeah. can maybe make him better, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say his ceiling is potentially Gordon and Connor. I think it's something short of that. Okay. But obviously a tremendous runner. So your yeah. dynasty guys don't don't shy away from him too too much. Absolutely. Uh, from the receiving side of things, Steven Sims, a player that I love, very productive last December out of the slot for Washington. What do you think about him this year? I love him too. And I kind of honestly, December, I sort of missed on the Steven Sims happening in real time. I had to kind of go back and, and really look at what he did. When you start to think of the numbers, like why is Steven Sims you know, standing out in the final month of the <laughs> yeah. season? You know, obviously Trey Quinn went down. Sims got an opportunity in the slot and he absolutely ran with it. Uh, explosive speed, a guy that, uh, you know, is a danger to score from anywhere on the field. But what I thought was, we were for such a small guy. He was so effective in the red zone, just watching his ability kind of, kind of crafty has some mm-hmm. great stop and go uh, moves and um, it's explosive. And so Dwayne Haskins seemed to take a liking to him. And right now I think he's well positioned to be the number two receiver. Kelvin Harmon went down. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I think there's some, you know, some established chemistry now between him and Haskins that should pick up here and, uh, I love him as a value in drafts right now. Yeah, I would recommend for for fantasy players, check out some of Sims' highlights from late last season. You probably missed him too because there wasn't a lot of reason to be watching Washington football games, (laughs) but he was great. He was a great returner and I think really showed a lot of top-end speed in addition to the quickness. Frankly, I'd like to see him get a little bit of work outside. You know, McLaurin was really good from the slot last season too. So like maybe Sims give him some downfield targets could could like broaden out the repertoire. I'm going to say something stupid, but like he... Like I see some Tyreek Hill to his game, which is again, it's stupid, but like, do you see like that kind of amazing upside? Not necessarily this season, but long term could be like a very effective fantasy player. I think they have a lot of similarities. One thing is Tyreek Hill's is is a little bit more stout, you know, like he yeah. he looks he's a little bit more Boston Scottish in terms of his build. Where Sims is kind of is pretty slim. He's not a not a big guy in that in that. But man, a lot of the other things that they do um, are similar. So, uh, you know, a middle class, poor man's version of Tyreek Hill, I, I'm willing yeah. to go there. I would definitely take a risk in some of your deeper formats this season. And I don't even know if you need to be in a deeper format to, to take a gamble on Randall Cobb with the Texans. What are your thoughts about his role for the team this season? Yeah, I kind of, you know, it's it's one of those things where you look at Will Fuller and Brandon Cooks and the recent injury history, and you expect that probably two of these three guys are going to be healthy at any given time and uh yeah should be a decent option. sad but true yeah it sort of feels like uh with the giants with uh with sterling shepherd golden tate and darius slayton you got three guys mm-hmm. there and are they all three going to be healthy at the same time probably not but uh 
yeah, it's a good it's a good spot for Cobb to be. We've seen some players like Kiki Kuti splash in that in that slot role there, and um, yeah, if he can sustain his health, I think there's a good opportunity to at least kind of match what he did in Dallas last year, which was like 800 yards. I think like 55, yeah. 60 catches. I think that's that's a fair expectation if he stays healthy. I can absolutely see that. And, and the thing to me is many people are assuming that Cooks is going to take that DeAndre Hopkins role specifically. Like it's obvious to connect those dots because of the trades the team made this offseason. But Cooks, Fuller, and Kenny Stills have all had over 13 average depth of targets the last couple right. seasons. So it's like these guys are probably at their best as field stretching type of players. Cobb is kind of on his own as the shallow target guy, the slot guy. And I think that that's a role that he doesn't have competition for, even though it seems like the Texans have a lot of wide receivers. Yeah. And they don't have a, they don't have a, you know, a, a kind of a go-to tight end. I think, you know, David Johnson could work into the mix heavily as in the short intermediate ranges, but, mm-hmm. uh, but you're right. Kind of Cobb versus his colleagues, at the wide receiver position definitely has a, has a different skill set than what the other ones offer. Absolutely. And speaking of tight ends, one deep PPR tight end target of yours, Mike Gesicki. You still high on him down in Miami? I am. I, I Yeah. I, you know, you're a little bit worried about Chan Gailey and his history and leaning on receivers. Once they started talking about him, you know, Gesicki getting a, you know, being used as a third receiver, um, then, you, then you're not so worried about the volume. He yeah. wasn't super efficient last year, but at least he got the volume and uh, if he gets that kind of volume and, and hopefully you can expect a, an improvement in efficiency, you know, year to year, just more seasoning, uh, hopefully that happens. But uh, yeah, I think that's what it's all about was just making sure that he wasn't going to get pushed out by Gailey's system of, you know, wanting to use th- three wide receivers a lot. So I think we feel better about that now, especially as guys like Albert Wilson and Alan Hearns have, have opted out. Uh, yeah. It kind of creates a bigger opportunity. And really for me, like while it's kind of alarming to see, Gasicki's efficiencies when you just look at like a seasonal list of players by DVOA or whatever, it's really not that unusual for a tight end to start slowly from an efficiency standpoint in his career. So Gasicki, negative 37.3% DVOA as a rookie, negative 16.3% last year. But just compare him to say Tyler Higby, negative 68% as a rookie, negative 10% as a sophomore, and then positive efficiency rates the last two seasons. It's a pretty normal schedule for a tight end to break out in his third or fourth season. I could definitely see that happening for him. And you get so excited about if if he actually just starts to understand the nuances of the game like that with a guy with his athletic ability. I mean, it's just uncommon at the tight end positions, Um, you know, so you start, you know, you start to get excited about that if this guy actually really does learn how to play football. Some of my favorite articles on the athletic fantasy football site recently have been those running back and wide receiver roundtable type discussions where you and the other staffers go through some of your favorite sleeper picks, some of your favorite bus picks, that type of stuff. And I've just kind of cherry picked a few examples of guys that I wanted to ask you about your opinions there. To start with, you indicated that you were pessimistic for Todd Gurley because of the knee arthritis that's become a story for him in recent seasons. Given that, is there anybody in Atlanta's backfield behind him that you think is maybe worth a flyer in your shallower leagues or maybe even your deeper leagues in, in the mid-rounds? Yeah, as far as I know, there's no cure for arthritis and it's degenerative. It doesn't get better, mm-hmm. it gets worse. And yeah, I just think that, you know, there's going to be a reckoning at some point for Gurley and that knee. I'm not excited about any of the backups. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out a late round, you know, flyer on Ito Smith. I'm gambling on him more than, okay. than anybody I just think this is a team that's primed to to pluck a a running back off of the, you know, off the cut list. Uh, 
in the next in the next week or so. You know, I've always kind of imagined like, man, Jordan Wilkins has just kind of lost in Indianapolis. <laughs> He'd be a great side if he got cut from Indy. Like Atlanta needs someone like that just to be at the ready to yeah. be, you know, a little bit more of a fully featured, capable kind of guy in the event that Todd Gurley can't play because of that knee. Yeah, that kind of motivated, I think, that you bringing up Fournette as at a potential landing spot, although mm-hmm. Atlanta is really hurting from a salary cap perspective. So I guess we'll have to see if they could even make that happen, but right. interesting there. Um, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but it seems like you would have been relatively low on Clyde Edwards-Hilaire if Damian Williams had played this season, although Williams did decide to opt out. Is that true, and is that about Williams' talent specifically, or do you have concerns about Edwards-Hilaire at all? Well, you know, I think it had to do with Damian Williams was kind of a hero down the stretch for the team. One of the, one of the, you know, and this was a team that yeah, won playoffs, was, especially made it yeah. all the way to the top of the mountain. You know, um, it's kind of like a, it's, we can, we can be the best team in football with Damian Williams. We do not have to thrust Clyde Edwards Hilaire into a lead role right away. We can slow play this. Damian Williams uh, was effective for us. Talent wise, you know, there's some questions about him, but man, I watched a lot of games where Damian Williams passed the eye test and then some, you know, he just, he, he played very well for this team. So I felt like that wasn't, they weren't going to ignore that and just throw Clyde Edwards Hilaire into the, into the number one position in that backfield. Um, so I expected there to be a decent platoon split. And, you know, a lot of the reporters and, and especially the guys at the athletic were saying the same thing that this was going to likely be at least a 50, 50 split between those two backs. And people weren't ranking it like that at all. They were no, dismissing they were Damian Williams and they no. were just ramping up the ranking on Edward Solaire. And I think that was, that was a little bit foolish. Now I'm all in <laughs> you know, at this point. Okay. Now, <laughs> now that, I, now that he's out of the picture, I don't have any problem with where he's ranked. Okay. Like I've, I've been worried about it a little bit and kind of talking myself out of it a little bit, saying things like, oh, like Edward Solaire ran a 4.640. It's kind of slow. And like maybe 40s don't matter for running backs nearly as much as quickness, but like is his elusiveness going to really play up in the pros? So like I've kind of made myself a little bit nervous about it. And I'll point out that last offseason, kind of around this time, the Chiefs unexpectedly added LaShawn McCoy to their backfield. And, you know, I think they're, Maybe they aren't super optimistic about Daryl Williams or Darwin Thompson. None of those guys are really popping right now. But could the Chiefs be looking to add somebody late in the game here, which would maybe sabotage a little bit of his value? Like a Leonard Fournette? <laughs> yeah. No, I maybe, think that's... Or, or maybe somebody more minor. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's a good question. They added DeAndre Washington. I don't think he's getting his name thrown around enough. He, he could be potentially okay. that guy. Um, but I, I think they're going to look at what they have internally and see if they feel comfortable with that. Um, but I, I don't discount that as a as a potential something that that arises. They see someone they like that could they could plug in and, and fit well in the system. So I, I do think it's Edwards Hilaire uh, as is still going to be the the number one guy. Um, and I, I do agree with you that, um, you know, that quickness and vision and lateral agility is more important than straight line speed. Running backs in the NFL don't get a chance mm-hmm. to use their straight line speed that much. Most of what they're doing is, you know, is within yards of the line of scrimmage. And it's, it's getting that extra yard, which is more important than, you know, most of the time than getting that extra 20 yards because you just don't have too many of those breakaway opportunities. Definitely. 
So I think you're looking pretty prescient. A few weeks ago, you mentioned that you weren't considering Sony Michelle a running back four. And now everything you're hearing is about Damian Harris potentially winning that number one job in New England. You think Harris will win that job? Or do you think Michelle has fantasy value or may have fantasy value even if Harris does win? Yeah, I think Harris could win. I mean, you're looking at their draft from last year and their first three rounds and Keel Harry and Damian Harris. I think they're probably looking at time to see what we got in these guys and to maybe get yeah. something back and get some kind of return. Sonny Michelle's just been a guy. He's just been you know, ham and agar and he's, you know, with Tom Brady running this offense, you know, his numbers have netted out fine, but he hasn't looked good. He hasn't been anything special. Uh, maybe with Damian Harris, you have a little bit more upside. I'm not sure if Damian Harris is great either. Um, so that's where I'm kind of just hesitant in, mm-hmm. you know, and Bill Belichick doesn't care about us. I mean, if he decides, you know, I have four different running backs that can do four different things and I'm just going to use them all in, in, in that way. Um, then nobody wins in fantasy. And I, I could see that just being as much of an outcome as anything else. Yeah. Maybe Cam Newton is the, is the fourth running back and he's the one that matters. Uh, <laughs> DVOA, point. by the way, really supports that opinion. Michelle, negative 2.7% and negative 6.4% rushing DVOA the first two seasons. In that offense, I think you would definitely would have expected better from the lead back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're ahead of the industry with a top 15 ranking of Cortland Sutton. Do, does that in your mind require a really good season from Drew Locke? Or uh, do you think that Sutton maybe gets a continuity bump given that there are other rookie receivers like Judy and, and Hamler may have that this disrupted offseason? Or like, what are your thoughts there on Sutton? Yeah, I think so. I think Drew Locke has to be good. And I think he does get a continuity bump for being the guy there. Um, you know, I love Cortland Sutton. Just, you know, I'm just looking at him as a talent. I think, uh, you know, I always look at uh, your guys's because um, you're like one of the, one of the few places on Football Outsiders where I can find defensive pass interference penalties drawn. Yeah, and Sutton was number one in that last year in both in terms of I think he had eight defensive PIs on him and for 150 yards. But I think that speaks to you know what a threat he is on the sideline, and you know it gets gets uh, gets out ahead of his of the of the corners, and they're you know they're having to they're having to interfere with him. I always felt like that should be a fantasy number. That should go to his stats because <laughs> they're getting those yards anyway. Yeah. Why, that was sort that was Sutton who made it happen, but absolutely. Um, Joe Flacco, uh, top 10 receiver. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Quarterback. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, I just such a, he's such a, just a stud uh, on the outside and, and one of the biggest vertical threats in the game. And I, apparently he's having a great camp, but I think, obviously it takes two to tango and you need drew lock to be good. And if he is good, there's a lot to like about this Denver offense and the potential for it to, you know, take another step forward. And I would expect Cortland Sutton, who was by the way, much better in fantasy when Emmanuel Sanders was there than when he was gone. And I think you can get the same kind of yeah, bump with, with Jerry Judy. Uh, you, you need somebody else to kind of, you know, even things out and get the defense looking uh-huh. other places. Yeah, Noah Fant, the second year tight end, could be that guy too. But again, not necessarily hurting Sutton's value in any way. It could be helping him. Right. Um, I think probably most fantasy players prefer A.J. Brown, sophomore receiver for the Titans, to Sutton. But you're a little bit more pessimistic, and we are too. So I'd love to hear your reason for it. Yeah, I think so much of so much of his game was uh, was about efficiency last year. That with with low volume, he was able to do some of these crazy things. He averaged over twenty yards a catch. He even had one carry. He took forty nine yards for a touchdown. Like there was yeah. games where he had like three catches, a hundred yards, and a touchdown. It's like, 
Yeah, Ryan Tannehill was awesome, but are we going to get some regression from Ryan Tannehill in some negative regression? I would think so. This is still going to be an offense that is, uh, you know, centered around Derrick Henry. And there's the A.J. Brown numbers netted out nicely, but it was a bumpy ride if you actually owned him. And and no one really did early on because he was putting up, I think he had nine games if you count the postseason where he had 34 yards or less. And in the postseason, when things got tough and you're facing New England and Baltimore, this team didn't even want Tannehill to throw the ball. I think he threw less than 20 times yeah, both times. A.J. Brown was absolutely a non-factor in the three postseason games. So I think with regression from Ryan Tannehill, from you know defenses coming in with a with a good idea of of what AJ Brown is, there's going to be a there's going to be a drop in efficiency. And I'm not sure if any receivers ever averaged 20 yards a catch back to back seasons. Um, I, I know it hasn't happened very often if it has, and I just expect there to be a drop in efficiency across the board in this passing game. I suspect if any receiver's done that before, it's been like a really deep target guy, like a Ted Ginn type of player. And that's really not what AJ Brown is. Right. And to that point, Brown averaged 4.4 more yards after the catch than expected given where he caught his balls. And that's like a totally huge outlier relative to the other guys since we've been measuring yards after uh, the catch. So I think that's a thing that's really going to regress for him specifically too. Pairing that with what you said about Tanhill and everything else, Brown, we're down on Brown too. Like obviously he's going to probably see more targets by playing the full season, but right. as an efficient player that those numbers are going to go down per target. Yep. I'm on board with that. Given what I read um, from your stuff, I suspect that you would have had Debo Samuel ahead of AJ Brown if he had been healthy to start the season. And I guess there's maybe still a chance of that, but if he does end up missing some time, is there a 49ers receiver behind him that you think is a player that you could draft as just a short-term placeholder? Uh, you know, I think Brandon Ayuk would have been that guy. He's a little bit banged up as well. I'm not sure if he's going to hit the ground running in week one uh, because of mm-hmm. that. Um, but he's, you know, he's somewhat great yards after the catch guy, kind of physical, uh, has some Debo Samuel characteristics. And maybe they're going for a type here uh, with that. But yeah, um, it does seem to fit in with their sort of who Shanahan's been targeting. There's right. clearly a lot of thought, I think, the 49ers put into the type of players they, they try to get. Yeah, absolutely. And and Debo Samuel's just kind of, you know, one of those guys who's a running back playing re- uh, wide receiver and uh, kind of ferocious, fearless. I've always liked those kind of guys, the Steve Smith, mm-hmm. uh, Anquan Bolden, Heinz Ward kind of guys. And I think Debo fits that mold. I'm surprised to hear that he has a chance to play as early as it is. I, I expected that maybe we wouldn't see him for the first three or four weeks of the season, but it sounds like he might be out there, uh, you know, by week two, uh, potentially. So yeah. good that things are trending in the right direction with that. I love the guy. I love yeah. it. And, and I'm a Seahawks fan. So to say I love a 49er like that, uh, <laughs> it's saying something. <laughs> that, that's great. Um, you also gave a vote of confidence to rookie slot receiver Devin DuVarnay as a possible sleeper. Um, does that mean that you think that Marquise Brown or Miles Boykin maybe don't have the same opportunities to to improve? Or do you think maybe the Ravens could be shifting their offense to be a little bit more three-receiver um, type of sets this season? Yeah, i just looking at Willie Sneed and saying, okay, you, you, he's very pedestrian. Uh, he's, you know, he's a reliable hands, route runner kind of guy. But uh, you can put Devin Duvernay in the in the slot, which is what he played a lot of in, at Texas. Um, but what what his particular skill was was catching screen passes and breaking tackles on yeah. those catches and doing stuff with it. And he's another one of these running backs playing wide receiver. But I believe he led. If he wasn't first, he was second in BCS schools in in screen grabs. And 
was fantastically efficient in those. And I could just see that as a wrinkle to Baltimore where you got Marquise Brown, who's a field stretcher. He's got, you know, defenses. Lamar Jackson's already spread the defense out, but you're also worried about Marquise Brown downfield. Duvernay as a wrinkle playing in the slot, catching screen passes from Lamar Jackson, which is, you know, is a highly efficient pass, uh, you know, completion wise. Anyways, uh, they could have a lot of success with that. This is a guy around a four, three, nine. And I'm just, I'm just kind of, thinking this up myself that man that would be a great wrinkle for this Ravens offense that was already fantastic as it was now you have something else that you'd have to think about it's actually really easy to connect those dots because I mean 43% two tight end sets last year was fourth in the league they subtract Hayden Hurst in the trade of Atlanta add DuVernay like it's you know it's pretty easy to, to see that happening right. so probably and, getting and stuff he only has Willie much. Sneed to overcome and I just don't mm-hmm. feel like that's a that's a high bar to to overcome Absolutely. Okay. You and most of your staff pegged Henry Ruggs as the high ceiling rookie wide receiver. Um, But in my dynasty drafts, it seemed like Ruggs was kind of falling a little bit more than I expected. So do you think the ceiling thing is just specific to Ruggs' talent? Or do you think maybe it's a situation where he's got a very promising immediate impact type of role that maybe won't give him the, the higher future ceiling with the guys like Lamb and Judy? Like, what do you think about Ruggs short and long term? Well, he's another guy that's been compared to Tyreek Hill. Um, not only is it just crazy speed, but he actually can run routes. And mm-hmm. if you look at all the all the rookie wide receivers, uh, you could argue that Ruggs is is the most clear potential number one guy um, in their rookie season. Uh, I think Jalen Rager, the way you know the injuries were shaping up in Philly, was kind of trending that direction as well. But now he's hurt for a month, and Justin Jefferson's not getting rave reviews yet he yeah. thought that he might have a you know really good chance to sit there next to Thielen and get good target share but as a true number one I think Ruggs has the best case to make and they're also talking about running him in the slot I know Vic Tafour from the athletic who covers the Raiders you know calls Derek Carr the slant master and talks up that potential for Ruggs in the slot to you know make a lot of hay with those slant passes as well so yeah. Um, there's a lot of things to like it again. I just think the Raiders as an offense are arrowing up big time. Nice. Okay. And then I'm going to give you a, just kind of a wild card one here too, with so many people entering their drafts, probably this week or over the weekend. Is there any player, um, that, or like any advice that you think they should try to follow this weekend? Hmm. That's a, I mean, I got, uh, you know, I, we've talked about a lot of my guys that I love and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I don't know if it's really directly to this question, but as a commissioner of leagues, I've added like four bench spots and like, just to kind of deal with the pandemic, deal with the pandemic, have it be out in front of it. You know, there could be wonky injury information that comes out on what a guy's dealing with. You can't rely on an IL spot. I think you just give the owners going in the chance to set their insurances in place ahead of time and, and just tell everybody, you know what? just plan on dealing with something and and think about that as you go into your drafts. Well, that's perfect. Brandon, thanks so much for joining me. Do you want to talk about anything you have coming up work-wise or maybe something coming up with the athletic leading into the season? Yeah, well, we got our, our final round table is going to be a combination of quarterbacks and tight ends this week. Uh, You'd mentioned the running back and wide receiver. So we'll close out that series and yeah, just, you know, check out the athletic. We have a bunch of stuff coming out this week uh, in advance of the final big draft weekend. And then we'll be, 
then we'd be ready to go week in and week out, just providing, you know, uh, information that people need to set their lineups. So yeah, definitely check it out. I appreciate it, Scott. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, and all of our listeners also check out the athletic fantasy football podcast with Brandon and and Jake Seeley. Great stuff on there as always. And thanks again for joining me, Brandon. Best of luck with your drafts this year. Yeah. Likewise to you and best of luck throughout the year. Okay. Thanks again for Brandon for joining me today. I thought that was great. Uh, but we've got a lot more to do on this episode as well. We're going to go through quarterbacks and tight ends, both the top players on our Kubiak preseason projections up on Football Outsiders, one stat per player. Uh, let's just go ahead and get that started with the top quarterbacks. Uh, we actually have Lamar Jackson a little bit ahead of Patrick Mahomes. Uh, but I mean, obviously, both players are fantastic for Jackson. He broke 55 tackles in 2019, more than twice as many as Josh Allen in second place among quarterbacks. Obviously, getting it done with his legs and the more your league settings favor running quarterbacks, uh, the more Jackson is valuable relative to the other players of the position. And then for Mahomes, uh, he's actually averaged 3.9 fewer fantasy points per game at home than on the road the last three seasons. That's the biggest uh, reversed platoon split, I guess, of home road splits at the position. So Mahomes, somebody that you don't really need to worry about playing matchups with, probably obvious, but he gets it done on the road as well as at home. Number three, Dak Prescott, uh, 27.1% passing DVOA with six at the position last season, ahead of guys like Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Aaron Rodgers, and Matt Ryan. I know Prescott hasn't been like a fantasy star necessarily for a long time, but he is a very good player, a bit of an underrated player, even though he's the Cowboys quarterback and very popular because of that. He also has a lot of those you know, smaller factors that make him a a better player and make his offense a better passing offense. Things like playing his home games in a dome, having a great offensive line with their 4.3% adjusted sack rate last year, second best uh, in the league. And he's obviously got great receivers, including adding C.D. Lamb in the draft this year, our number one player and playmaker score. So a lot of things going in Prescott's favor that bump him up to number three in the Kubiak rankings of the position. Number four, we've got Deshaun Watson. 2.18 average uh, accurate deep passes per game since 2017 or second most of the position behind only Patrick Mahomes. And I think that's a very relevant stat given that he's kind of got a new collection of receivers without DeAndre Hopkins, but with Brandon Cooks, hopefully with the healthy Will Fuller and also Kenny Stills, all of whom are deep threat targets. Uh, he, they're actually a really good fit for Watson's skill set. So I think they can actually have a lot of passing success on Houston's offense anyway. Uh, even without Hopkins there. Uh, Number five, Russell Wilson. Forgot to do a stat there, but obviously a very productive player. Number six, Matt Ryan. Averaged 2.0 fewer fantasy points per game at home than on the road the last three seasons. So that's a little bit of a surprise for a player that has a dome as their home. That tends to accentuate the splits, uh, the normal home and road splits for quarterbacks. But I think Ryan is somebody you can trust regardless of venue. Number seven, Kyler Murray. Uh, Aaron Schatz's research on quarterback DVOA changes uh, by career season, they show that the biggest jump for quarterbacks happens from year one to year two. It's about 15% in DVOA and 5% or less in every other you know, transition year through a quarterback's career. So I think it's reasonable to assume that Murray will take his biggest jump this season, which is why we have him in the top 10 at the position. Number eight, Drew Brees. Uh, unlike Matt Ryan, Breeze has averaged 5.4 more fantasy points per game at home than on the road the last three seasons, the second biggest differential at the position. At this point, in my mind, Breeze is somebody you really only want to start at home if you can avoid it. So if you're in a shallower type of format, I think it's, you know, you can draft Breeze as a top 10 guy and use him in his home games with confidence, but you can actually eke a lot more fantasy points out of your lineup if you bench him on the road and just, you know, 
add your guys from the 15 to 25 range in overall ranking, but who have the best matchups each week. Maximize your points there. Number nine, Josh Allen. Uh, So Allen has scored 0.60 rushing touchdowns per game in his career over 28 games. And over the last handful of seasons, that's easily the most of the position. So his 0.61 versus Cam Newton in second, 0.46. Lamar Jackson, 0.39. Tim Tebow, 0.39. And then Deshaun Watson, 0.37. Dak Prescott, 0.33. And nobody else over 0.3. So Allen has a huge advantage as a touchdown scorer here. I'm a little concerned that that could, you know, wean a little bit over time the way that it did for Newton, who scored a lot his first few seasons and then slowed down. But, you know, entering his third season, I'm pretty confident that Allen can keep that up, and that's why he remains top 10 in the position for me. Number 10, Tom Brady, back in the top 10. But I'll point out that since 2015, Brady's accuracy percentage has declined every season. So it was 73.9% in 2015, then 72.6%, 72.1%, 70.4% in 2018, and just 66.9% in 2019. I think that's probably a little bit more receiver dependent than I'm presenting here. We're using catchable targets based on sport radar uh, charting, which you think that's probably mostly quarterback driven more so than just reception, certainly. But I think there's probably some receiver splits here. But even if Brady is slipping a little bit as a player himself, I think the situation just improved so dramatically with him going down to Tampa Bay that he's back in the top 10 for me this season. And passing by Aaron Rodgers, uh, number 11. Packers receivers actually dropped 33 passes in 2019, tied for second most in football. Uh, They didn't really improve their receiving core very much, uh, quite, I would say, infamously in the draft. But I will point out that Geronimo Allison had seven of those drops on just 55 targets last season. So maybe a little bit of addition by subtraction there. Hopefully some of those younger guys um, like Marquez Valdez-Scantling can maybe improve a little bit going into their third season. Number 12, Joe Burrow. Bit of a riskier pick here, but I do love the Bengals' offense. Uh, I'll note that Bengals quarterbacks took 48 sacks in 2019, tied for ninth most in football. But the offensive line allowed just a 23.9% pressure rate, second lowest in football. So it may have been a situation where some of the inexperienced passers coming in behind Dalton, they were just taking sacks based on inexperience, didn't know when to get rid of the ball, uh, weren't trusting their reads the way that they needed to. I'm hoping that Burrow can have a little bit more success. Meanwhile, the Bengals, they do regain offensive tackle Jonah Williams, who was the team's first round draft pick in 2019, but who missed uh, the full season because of a shoulder injury. So possibly even better pass protection this season. Number 13, Matthew Stafford. Stafford averaged 21.5 fantasy points per game over the first nine weeks last season before his injury. That was tied for fifth best at the position, actually tied with Patrick Mahomes, uh, behind only Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, and Dak Prescott. So I think Stafford is a player you can definitely trust in fantasy. You're hoping that he has a little bit better injury luck this season, but the, the Lions are poised to be a very good offense, maybe the best in Stafford's career. Number 14, Teddy Bridgewater. We like Bridgewater a lot more than I think a lot of other places. Um, One thing that I'll point out is that Bridgewater obviously has a reputation as being a very conservative quarterback, which I think is justifiable to a certain extent. But his 7.4 yard ADOT in 2015 with the Vikings kind of continued with Mike Zimmer still being there. He brought in Cousins, who's had a 7.4 ADOT as well. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater had a 6.2 yard ADOT in 2019 with the Saints, but with Sean Payton still there and with Breeze there as the normal starter, Breeze has had a 7.2 yard ADOT, so also very low. It may have been a situation where Bridgewater had a low ADOT because his coaches were just more interested in running a conservative type of offense. Obviously, those offenses were very effective with that type of approach. 
But meanwhile, Bridgewater actually threw an accurate deep pass on 56.5% of his attempts for 16-plus yards in the air last season. That was the fifth best of 34 quarterbacks with his total number of attempts. So it may be a situation where Bridgewater has a little bit more diversity to his game than he's shown. And so I don't think it's necessarily a given that guys like Curtis Samuel and Robbie Anderson can't have success with Bridgewater being there. And I think the Panthers are going to pass a ton. So I think that all of that is kind of contributing to Bridgewater's better ranking in our Kubiak rankings. Number 15, Gardner Minshew. Obviously just lost Leonard Fournette, but still I think going to have a successful fantasy season, in part because in just 12 starts as a rookie, Minshew ran 67 times for 344 yards. He's actually just one of seven quarterbacks we project for 300-plus rushing yards, and in a typical fantasy format, that's just so valuable. Uh, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, Deshaun Watson, Kyler Murray, and Russell Wilson all have 300 projected rushing yards in our system. They're all top 10 in ADP. Cam Newton is the other quarterback that falls in that bucket. I think he probably would be top 10 in ADP if he hadn't been so hurt in recent seasons. Just kind of illustrates how important rushing success is for fantasy production for quarterbacks, and which is why we like Minshew. Number 16, Daniel Jones. Uh, Jones was hit on the second highest percentage of his dropbacks in 2019. With just a four-man rush, he had a 9.4% passing DVOA, very solid, but negative 20.1% DVOA against a five-man rush or higher. So given those splits, given Jones' propensity to fumble a lot, uh, I I think he's probably going to see a lot more pressure this season than even he did last year. Teams are just going to blitz and blitz and blitz until he proves he he can beat it. And so because of that, I think I'm probably a little bit more pessimistic for Jones's fantasy success this season than other places, even given the second-year quarterback bump that I explained with Kyler Murray. Okay, number 17, Jared Goff. He's averaged 3.1 more fantasy points per game at home than on the road since 2017. That's the sixth most at the position. So even though you're kind of getting into the range where maybe Goff doesn't quite deserve to be drafted in a shallow league, he is a player you can definitely use in his home games Uh, Maybe pair him with Drew Brees, something like that. You could get a lot of fantasy success that way. Number 18, Carson Wentz. So Wentz has shown a declining trend in his passing DVOA from 23.8% in his near MVP 2017 season to 8.1% in 2018 to just 0.1% in 2019, basically neutral. But that trend follows an increasing trend in the team's reliance on 12 personnel with two tight ends on the field, just 31% in 2017, middle of the pack, then 43% in 2018 and 57% last year, both tops in the NFL. So I think it's it's kind of a situation where Wentz's fantasy success is going to depend on whether his first or second year receivers can maybe emerge as a vertical threat or maybe Deshaun Jackson can come back healthy and do that for him. Uh, just relying on those tight ends, it's kind of a conservative but effective offensive approach that I just think it's holding Wentz back a little bit from a fantasy perspective. Hopefully those guys... You know, I know Rager's hurt, but hopefully maybe J.J. Arcega-Whiteside uh, or maybe Deshaun Jackson can come back and really help him complete that offense, get get to throwing the ball back down the field a little bit more. Number 19, Phillip Rivers. 1.92 average accurate deep passes per game the last three seasons, ninth most at the position. I think that's a really important thing to point out with his moving to the Colts because Jacoby Brissett had just 1.07. Last year, that was 33rd of the 34 quarterbacks with 200 or more attempts. And I think in particular that makes Rivers a really, really nice fit with T.Y. Hilton. Could thrive that and kind of revive that deep passing game that didn't exist for the team last season. And as such, I think Rivers is going to probably have a successful decline on his new team, even as he pushes 40 years old. Number 20, Kirk Cousins. So 31 of Cousins' 86 passes, 16-plus yards down the field last season, targeted Stephon Diggs. 
And I don't think Adam Thielen nor rookie Justin Jefferson really replaced that skill set at all. So in my mind, the Vikings already a kind of conservative offense could lose a little bit more of their explosiveness throwing down the field. And that hurts Cousins, I think, in fantasy a little bit, knocks him down to 20th at the position for me. Uh, for, for Ben Roethlisberger is a guy that I think has a big reputation as having a home road split that was kind of built in that 2014 to 2016 range when he averaged 9.9, 9.7, and 12.6 more fantasy points per game at home than on the road. But it's kind of dipped a little bit since then, just 5.7 in 2017, zero, so completely neutral in 2018. And then 2019, he obviously didn't play enough to really justify the trend in any way. But to me, without having that home dome up there in Pittsburgh, I don't think his home road split should be as extreme as he showed over that three-year period. And given the broader trends of his career, I think he probably has a little bit more modest of a home and road split. Something to keep in mind for you in your fantasy drafts this season. Obviously, ranked 21st, maybe not an obvious starter for you, um, although could obviously bounce back more than we're suggesting, depending on how he's just dealing with his injury recovery. Number 22, Cam Newton, 59.6% career completion percentage. So that's obviously not a great number, especially by the the more modern standards. But I'll point out that that was a little bit built on a downfield passing offense that by its nature is going to have a lower completion percentage. With a more conservative passing offense, when Newton had an 8.8 yard average depth of target in 2018, he actually jumped up to a 67.9% completion percentage, a career high by more than 6%. And it it illustrates to me that Newton may be a little bit more accurate than his reputation, at least when his shoulder is healthy. Um, So when he's throwing those shallower targets to guys like James White and Julian Edelman this year for the Patriots, I think he really can have success and can bounce back to being a really good fantasy player. Just 22nd in the position because of the, the lack of weapons. But if some of those other Patriots receivers break out, then I think that really opens the door for Newton to return to the top 10 at the position. Number 23, Ryan Tannehill. The, tan, uh, the Titans finished fourth in the football with a 49.8% run ratio last season. And given that, I think Tannehill is likely to see some regression. So he was very successful in his long play action passing attempts and had a ton of receiving yards after the catch, especially from rookie A.J. Brown. Kind of an, an unprecedented type of success there. And if those things back off a little bit, I think that's going to probably convert a lot of the touchdowns that he scored to rushing touchdowns for Derrick Henry. And as such, I think that that drops Tannehill pretty significantly from his success over the back half of last season, which is why we have him 23rd at the position uh, in fantasy. Number 24, Baker Mayfield. Mayfield actually led the NFL with 16 interceptions on 394 attempts without pressure. We talked about this a little bit with Mike Clay a few weeks ago, but Mayfield when he wasn't seeing pressure, was really the worst quarterback in football. And I don't know whether that was caused by the high pressure rate where he was maybe hearing footsteps that weren't there when there wasn't pressure or not. But that'll be something interesting to keep in mind when we're we're evaluating early this season with the new offense under Kevin Stefanski. As it stands now, I'm nervous enough that he's a mid-20s quarterback for me in fantasy. Number 25, Jimmy Garoppolo. Garoppolo had a modest total of 476 pass attempts last season, but was tied for first with nine passing touchdowns from 10 or more yards away um, from the end zone when they were caught, so at least 10 yards after the catch. Uh, He threw just 27 passing attempts into the end zone last season, the fourth fewest in football and fewest by a passer on a playoff team. I think there may be some truth to those high rates where Kyle Shanahan seems to be accumulating guys that thrive after the catch and that are really fast, like his running backs that really can get those extra yardage. But even still, 
it may be a bit of an outlier type of rate, and I think that could drop Garoppolo further in fantasy than you would expect given his Super Bowl accolades, uh, such that, to me, he's a mid-20s type of quarterback, maybe somebody you would only use situationally or in DFS. Number 26, Sam Darnold. Darnold's averaged 5.0 more fantasy points per game at home than on the road since 2017, tied for third most of the position. I'm curious how much of that is just his inexperience uh, as a quarterback, but kind of like what I said with Roethlisberger, you wouldn't necessarily expect a quarterback playing in, a, in the outdoors up north to have such an extreme home road split, but something to keep in mind with Darnold. Number 27, Drew Locke. Uh, this is kind of a weird split over the first half and second half of games. In the first half, he completed 69.1% of his passes for 7.6 yards per attempt, six touchdowns, and no interceptions. But in the second half, that dropped to 58.5% completion percentage, 5.3 yards per attempt, and one touchdown versus three interceptions. Pretty stark. And I don't know whether that's just a small sample size quirk. He obviously only started five games last season. But it could be evidence that Locke maybe had success when the scripted plays that his team ran for him early in games maybe wasn't as effective when he was making his own reads later in the game where, you know, they can't script out 60 plays. So that's something that's a little bit of a worrying sign for me. I'm, I'm not going to say that it's going to prevent him from being a successful fantasy quarterback this season, but I wouldn't get overly excited and drop, draft him in the top 20 when there's, you know, steadier veteran guys like Kirk Cousins in that range that I think will probably be a little bit better. Number 28, Dwayne Haskins. Obviously very red flaggy here with a negative 42% passing DVOA as a rookie. That puts him in very unfavorable company uh, with some of the Josh Rosen type of busts over the years. But I'll point out too that Haskins trended very positively. So after starting with negative 72.6% and negative 88.4% games to start his rookie season, that improved every week to negative 42.7%, negative 13.8%, and then positive 43.7% and 44.7% DVOA games to end his season. So to me, that gives me a little bit more optimism going forward that Haskins maybe can work it out. Uh, It doesn't propel him into the top of my fantasy rankings by any stretch, but I don't think it's a given that Haskins is going to be a bust. And so maybe in your dynasty type formats, that's a relevant concern for you. Okay, starting at 29, we have some quarterbacks that aren't starting every week. Uh, We're projecting for Mitchell Trubisky, Derek Carr, Uh, Tyrod Taylor and Ryan Fitzpatrick to all potentially lose their jobs, which is why they're in the bottom four among our our week one starters in the rankings. Um, But there are some potential utility here with these guys, um, especially on a game per game basis for Trubisky. He's averaged 5.0 more fantasy points per game at home than on the road since 2017, tied for third most of the position. So probably a player that if he lands the starting job over Nick Foles, you can actually start a little bit in his home games. For Derek Carr, he's also averaged 3.4 more fantasy points per game at home than on the road, fifth most of the position the last three seasons. So sort of same story there. Um, for for Tyrod, I, I probably want to wait and see what we get there. I have him 31st at the position, starting just 10.1 games before the rookie Herbert takes over. And then for number 32, Ryan Fitzpatrick, we're projecting him for the, the shortest tenure here with just 9.3 starting games. But I'll point out, too, that the Dolphins receivers dropped 38 passes in 2019, second most in football. Albert Wilson had six, the most on the team. Alan Hearns, Kalen Ballage, and Patrick Laird each had four, tied for second most on the team. All of those guys are gone. So it could be – I mean, it wouldn't be shocking to see the Dolphins take a pretty market step forward on offense and just in general this season. Could be good for fantasy success, although I just think with Fitzpatrick, probably won't be holding on to the starting job for long enough to really make that huge difference.
Okay, that knocks out the major quarterbacks to discuss, so let's shift over to tight ends to finish off our Kubiak fantasy preview uh, with the top tight end rankings. Number one, two, and three, you can probably guess, although maybe not the order, Travis Kelsey, Zach Ertz, and George Kittle. Keep in mind, this is a PPR format ranking here. We have Kittle over Ertz in, in typical leagues with, with no PPR. But for Kelsey, uh, he didn't play as a rookie in 2013, but since then he scored at least 175 PPR points in six straight seasons. No other tight end has more than five of those seasons since 2009. So obvious why Kelsey's at the top of the list here. Ertz has had four of those seasons. So that's, you know, obvious there too. Kittle has had two the last two seasons. No other top, top tight end in fantasy consideration this year has more than one. The four other guys that have them that are still active are Gronkowski had five, Jason Witten had five, Jimmy Graham had five, and Greg Olson had five. But I think it's fair to consider all four of those players past their prime. And for me, it makes Kelsey, Ertz, and Kittle in, in any order that you want to go with there the clear top three at the position. Number four, Mark Andrews obviously just has the one year of success, but a very, very effective player lost Hayden Hurst as a potential drain on his fantasy value. But I'll point out, too, that he caught 10 touchdowns against 7.3 opportunity-adjusted touchdowns last season. That's a 2.7 touchdown surplus, which was sixth biggest at the position, and either the biggest or second biggest among the big names, depending on who you, who you call big there. So I think it's possible that Andrews may see a little bit of regression there, maybe catch a, a few fewer touchdowns to knock him out of that top-tier consideration, but still obviously a top-five option here. Uh, for number five, we have Tyler Higby. Maybe somebody we have a little bit higher than you're going to see in, in other ranking sets. But I'll point out that he jumped from 3.7 targets per game from weeks 1 to 11 to 10.3 targets per game from weeks 12 to 17, which led the position over that back half stretch of the season. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of guesswork here. I'll call educated guesswork that Higby can keep up some of that extreme uh, improvement over the second half of the season. Gerald Everett missed a lot of time in there, so if you know he comes back and reasserts himself to a certain extent, then maybe that'll hurt Higby. But Higby's looked like a very efficient receiver in DVOA uh, last season. Meanwhile, Brandon Cooks is no longer with the team, and Josh Reynolds has been more of a replacement-level talent based on his 50% catch rate in his career. So I think Higby's going to play more. The Rams may even go with a little bit more 12 personnel to get him and Everett on the field together and give Higby some extra targets. To me, I'm pretty confident that he's fifth at the position, although feel free to flip-flop him with number six, Darren Waller, since Waller has had a little bit lengthier success in his career. Waller actually had a 22% DVOA that was seventh highest among tight ends last season with 25 or more targets. But I'll point out that rookie Foster Moreau on the same team was third with a 29.6% DVOA, and the team also added Jason Witten. So there's a a bit few too many mouths to feed at the position. I, I hardly think Waller is going to be the guy that loses out. Waller may actually be the best receiving option, period, on uh, on the team. But to me, it's enough that he's not quite in that Andrews range, even if he showed that he was last season when the Raiders had a few fewer obvious targets. Number seven, Hayden Hurst of Atlanta. I'm going to borrow this from Mike Clay's 50 Things article that I've cited a few times. During Dan Quinn's five seasons as head coach, the Falcons' tight end target share has fallen no lower than 15% and has been between 15% and 19% every year. Dirk Cutter's offenses, meanwhile, have ranged from between 18% and 21% over the past five seasons with him as the head coach or defensive coordinator. And so to, to Mike, that suggests that Hayden Hurst has a pretty high floor for a newcomer and like kind of a new emerging starter. And frankly, I agree. Hurst had a 28.1% DVOA last season. That was the second best of tight ends with 30 or more targets. 
So I think he's shown in limited options that he is a very efficient, effective player. He only didn't stick in Baltimore because Andrews also happens to be really good, and maybe we're just kind of reallocating some of their their value. I think Hurst is pretty safely in the top 10, even though he's never shown it before. Number eight, Evan Ingram. Ingram caught 85.5% of his catchable targets over the last three seasons. That's actually the lowest among tight ends with 100 or more targets, lower even than Ricky Seals-Jones at 87%, and lower than Eric Ebron at 87.2%. So a little bit of an alarming trend there to pair with his alarming trend of just staying healthy and on the field. To me, even though he's been a top five tight end producer when he's been healthy, that keeps him out of that range for me. He's kind of a a tear down from the Andrews type of guys at eighth at the position in PPR. Number nine, Austin Hooper, uh, now with the Cleveland Browns. The Browns used two tight end sets 28% of the time in 2019, just 15th most of the position, but the Vikings used them 56% of the time, more than twice as often, and second most of the position overall or in the NFL overall. So I think that suggests to me that with Stefanski coming in as the new head coach for the Browns, probably going to see a lot more two tight end sets with Hooper and Njoku. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a terrible thing for Hooper's fantasy value, but I'll point out that he's personally had 88 and 97 targets the last two seasons, while the Vikings for all of their tight ends, have just had 95 and 106 targets the last two seasons. So I think Hooper probably will use a little bit of volume relative to what he saw in that pass-happy and tight end target-happy Atlanta Falcons offense. Number 10, Hunter Henry. Henry's 11.0 PPR points per game since 2016 are eighth most at the position with at least 16 games played and actually sixth most among active tight ends, so you would think that he maybe belongs up in that top six range. But he's also missed one of those four seasons and missed at least one game in his three healthy seasons. He's missed one, two, and four games in those three healthy seasons. So I think there are some additional injury concerns here with Hunter Henry that you don't have for some of the other top tight end options. Drops him down to 10th at the position for me. Uh, Number 11, Jared Cook. Uh, Cook's 37.7% DVOA was the best at the position in 2019. It was also his career best by more than 20%. So for me, I'm expecting his 10.8 yards per target rate to fall by a yard or two this season. Could, Could hurt his fantasy production, depending on how he does with the touchdowns. But meanwhile, on the touchdowns front, he had nine scores last season versus just 4.3 opportunity-adjusted touchdowns. That 4.3 touchdown surplus was the biggest at the position. So there's a couple of factors there that could lead to some heavy regression. Maybe Drew Brees and that offense down in New Orleans can can sort of sustain a little bit of, of that overachieving, but I don't think it's quite enough to keep him in the top 10 in my rankings. Number 12, Dallas Goddard of the Eagles. The Eagles have led all teams with 43% and 57% two tight end percentages the last two seasons. So I think Goddard's clearly going to be on the field a lot, especially as the Eagles continue to lose players. It's kind of alarming and, and unbelievable. They continue to have that poor success. But with Rager missing more time again, it's just going to leave more opportunities for Goddard to be on the field and catching passes. Meanwhile, Goddard has been a little bit more efficient than Ertz even uh, over the last couple of seasons with a 0.3% receiving DVOA versus negative 1.1% for Ertz. So I could see Goddard continuing to see an increase in his target share, even if it's not hurting Ertz specifically. It's enough to make him 12th at the position for me this season. Number 13, TJ Hawkinson of of the Lions. He averaged 8.0 PPR points per game in weeks one through nine last season when Stafford was healthy. That was 15th best of the position and the highest among rookie tight ends. That 8.0 was a little bit better than Noah Fant's 6.9. 
And so as such, I have Hawkinson one spot ahead of Fant in our fantasy rankings this season, even though Hawkinson's fantasy points per game fell to just 4.3 after Stafford was hurt and before Hawkinson himself went out for the season. Uh, for Fant, I think it's reasonable to be opt- to be optimistic, maybe even more so than, than with Hawkinson. Mike Clay pointed out that the 10 best tight end rookie yards per target rate since 2007, uh, Fant is on that list. He is fifth best. Andrews was best. Gronkowski second. Hunter Henry and Chris Herndon tied for third. Fant was four, uh, fifth at 8.9 yards per target as a rookie. Then you have Aaron Hernandez, Zach Ertz, Jordan Reed, Jimmy Graham, and George Kittle. So pretty much all the best tight ends in the game had that type of efficiency as a rookie. And I think it it bodes very well for Fant's long-term fantasy value. And I think hopefully value this season too. Number 15, Jonu Smith of the Titans. Uh, So Smith was the third best tight end over the last two seasons in yards after contact per reception, 8.24 yards, trailing just George Kittle, who you can probably guess in that respect, and actually Noah Fant hilariously, uh, although just on 40 receptions for him, ahead of some other productive players like Evan Ingram and Darren Waller. I think Smith is a very powerful player, also had a 43.6% broken tackle rate last season, which led the position. This is a guy that has kind of been completely off of radars playing behind Delaney Walker in recent seasons, but could really emerge to be a top 10 option this season. Uh, It is a risk. I have him 15th at the position, but he's a great target for an upside type of play uh, in your shallower formats. Number 16, Mike Gesicki for the Dolphins. Gasicki has been a very inefficient player by DVOA, negative 37.3% as a rookie, negative 16.3% as a sophomore. But really, I don't think that's very unusual for, for tight ends. Just to give you a little bit of a counterexample here with Tyler Higby, he's now entering his fifth year of his career. His DVOA trends by season, negative 68.5% as a rookie, then negative 10.4%. Then it jumped to 15% and 5.5% last season. So I think there's reason for optimism that Gasicki can continue to improve. Meanwhile, the Dolphins in general should improve enough that I think that'll boost Gasicki's prospects. And Gasicki himself has caught 97.3% of his catchable targets as a pro, a very high rate. And I think it suggests that some of his efficiency struggles are probably because of his offense more than his own skill set. I have him 16th at the position with a lot of optimism. Number 17, Ian Thomas of the Panthers. Thomas has scored 87.8 fantasy points in the nine games the last two seasons that Greg Olson has missed. And so that's a full season pace of 156 points. They would have landed him ninth at the position if he had done that over the full season last season. So I think Thomas is a sneakier guy that now that he's the number one tight end for the Panthers, really could be a fantasy factor for you. Probably not enough to like give him top five type of upside, but when you're getting back toward the back end of the top 20, I think Thomas has a little bit of upside to make him a reasonable pick there. Number 18, Jack Doyle, another borrowing from Mike Clay's 50 Things article. Frank Reich's tight ends have enjoyed target shares of 23%, 24%, 31%, 29%, 27%, and 29% during his six seasons as a head coach or offensive coordinator across three teams. Colts 2020 offense might be on the lower end of that spectrum with the depth a bit weak behind Jack Doyle. But it's clear that Reich features the position in Indianapolis wide receiver room isn't exactly flush with top-end targets. Note that Doyle tied for the team lead with 31 targets, a 21% target share, once Eric Ebron went on injured reserve after Week 12 last season. So I think that points to Doyle being a heavily targeted option for the Colts this season. And in particular in PPR formats, clearly a top-20 guy in my mind. So you've probably been waiting for this name, number 19, Rob Gronkowski. 
There probably isn't a ton of difference between Gronk and, say, our number eight tight end uh, in terms of projected points this season. So it's it's fair to shuffle it a little bit long in there. But that said, I am still pretty pessimistic for Gronk. And this is more just a, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have too much offensive talent for everyone to have fantasy success type of situation. And I'll point out that Bruce Arians' offenses have never reached 20% tight end target share in a season. Half the teams in football exceeded a 20% tight end target share last season. So Arians tends to land in the bottom of the league in that reliance. And having Chris Godwin and Mike Evans, I think that'll continue to be the case this season, even with Tom Brady at quarterback. As such, we have Gronk pretty much pretty far down on the list, 19th at the position. Number 20, Irv Smith. Smith caught 97.3% of his 37 catchable targets as a rookie last season. I think that's a very promising sign. Uh, his teammate Kyle Rudolph caught all of his 39 catchable targets, so it doesn't necessarily differentiate Smith from Rudolph. But we do have Smith as the better fantasy option, given that he's, he's moving from his first year to his second year in the league and was fairly similarly productive to Rudolph last season. Number 21, Eric Ebron uh, for now with the Steelers. Uh, so, Ebron has caught, um, has seen 0.42 opportunity adjusted touchdowns per game over the last few seasons, which is the third highest at the position behind only Travis Kelsey and Zach Ertz, ahead of Jared Cook, ahead of George Kittle, ahead of Austin Hooper and Mark Andrews and Jimmy Graham and Kyle Rudolph. He's really one of the most effective touchdown scorers at the position and one of the most heavily targeted touchdown uh, end zone type of target guys at the position too could be lead to a season with the Steelers where even on a lower touchdown uh, a target volume he could catch some touchdowns and make his way into the top 15 or so we have him 21st of the position in a PPR format but that number would rise in a standard league number 22 Blake Jarwin now the Cowboys starter Cowboys tight ends in general have had just 11.9 opportunity adjusted touchdowns since 2017, the third fewest in football, but they've had a 5.1 touchdown surplus, which is double the next highest in the bottom 10 of teams. So to me, it's a situation where, you know, guys like Jason Witten may have had a little bit more success than you would have expected given where they were targeted. I think that's probably more luck than the offensive success of the team, although not definitely so. But to me, that keeps Jarwin out of the top 20, even though he's shown some really nice receiving efficiencies. Um, but maybe an option if, if people are overlooking him as a, a not-established player. Number 23, Kyle Rudolph. Uh, I mentioned his similarity to Irv Smith in the numbers last season. Those continued with broken tackle rates. Rudolph had a very poor 2.6% broken tackle rate, third lowest of 36 tight ends with 25 or more targets. Smith didn't beat him very much there at 5.6%. But again, Smith was a rookie. I think it's fair to expect Smith to continue to improve, whereas Rudolph is kind of the player he is at this point. I think the upside that he used to provide as a touchdown scorer is probably gone now, and I would definitely rather have Smith in fantasy this season. Number four, Christopher Hernan. Uh, I kind of brought this up with the Noah Fant side of things, but where Fant finished fifth over the last decade or so with 8.9 yards per target as a rookie, Hernan actually finished tied for third with Hunter Henry, just behind Rob Gronkowski and Mark Andrews. So I know it's been a couple of seasons full of injuries since then, but Hernan, I think, still does have upside as a talent for the Jets. And if you're outside the top 20 at that point and you're looking for upside, I think Hernan is a reasonable choice for you to potentially have, in the best case scenario, a top 10 type of season. 
And then I'll finish this off with uh, Greg Olson and Will Disley, 25th and 26th of the positions for us, both on the Seahawks. I'm not totally sure who the guy is to target here, and that's probably why we have them with similar target shares and similar rankings here. But I think that if one of these two can emerge as the clear top guy for Seattle, that will lead them to a lot of potential fantasy success. To point out, um, quarterbacks with the most end zone targets per game to tight ends over the last three seasons. Uh, Russell Wilson scores very high in that metric with 0.81 end zone targets per game to position. That's just behind... Andrew Luck, Alex Smith, Carson Wentz, and Patrick Mahomes for fifth most of the position. And obviously, Luck doesn't play anymore, so uh, and Smith probably doesn't either, honestly. So among the like relevant starters, only Carson Wentz and Patrick Mahomes target their tight ends more in the end zone than Wilson does. I think both of these guys have a chance to score a lot of touchdowns. If you were making me pick one guy to potentially land in the top 10, I would probably pick Disley. Um, but obviously, Olsen has been a, an effective and efficient receiver over a long career at this point it's possible that he could develop good chemistry with Russell Wilson as well. And both of them, I think, are probably viable options. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Football Outsiders Fantasy Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And again, thanks to Brandon for joining me on the show today. Before I go, I also want to mention that on footballoutsiders.com starting next week, we're going to be running a countdown to kickoff promotion that'll knock 25% off of your subscriptions, which includes all of our great fantasy football content. So check that out. Everyone that has a draft coming up this week or over Labor Day weekend, great, uh, great luck with that. But please, even after that, come back and listen to us again. We'll be doing weekly shows during the season to help you out with both your daily leagues and making lineup decisions. And we hope to talk to you then. Mm-hmm.